Thank you. Thank you very much. And the title for this morning's talk is The Opposition to the Kingdom. But what I want to say right at the very beginning is make it clear Jesus is victorious. Jesus has already triumphed. So if you hear nothing else this morning, I certainly want you to hear that. So I'm reading, going to read from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. My Bible has this heading, Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God. He said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. If you were here last week, or maybe if you want to catch up, you would have heard that uh, as John kicked off our new series on Luke's Gospel, John pointed out the definite historical setting that Luke puts it in. He mentioned several of the rulers of the time the Emperor Tiberius Caesar, the Governors Herod, Pontius Pilate, Philip Lysanias, and two of the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, a historical setting. If it was today, Luke might have written in the third year of the Prime Ministership of Boris Johnson, when Nicholas Sturgeon was First Minister of Scotland, Sadiq Khan, Mayor of London, and Andy Burnham, Mayor of Manchester, during the time of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, the word of the Lord came to John, and I was tempted at this point, but I thought, no, stick to the script, John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. But not only does Luke put the account of Jesus' ministry in its historical context, he also puts it in a definite spiritual context. He deliberately contrasts two spiritual situations in order to emphasize who Jesus is and what he's going to accomplish, despite the opposition he's going to face. So what are those two situations that Luke contrasts? Well, the first one is this. If we'd read the previous chapter, Luke traces the genealogy of Christ right back to, and I quote, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Also in chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism, Luke writes, The Holy Spirit descended on him, i.e. Christ, in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So we see Adam, the Son of God, 
and Jesus, the Son of God. In Adam's case, he was in a lush garden. Christ, on the other hand, is in a desolate wilderness. Adam was surrounded by abundance, Christ with destitution. Both are tempted by the devil. Genesis depicts the fall of man. Luke depicts the standing of man. Not only that, but secondly, Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness are symbolic of the 40 years following their deliverance from slavery in Egypt that Israel wandered through the wilderness because of their disobedience. Luke contrasts Christ's obedience with Israel's disobedience. Israel fails, but Christ succeeds. In responding to the devil's temptations, Jesus responds by quoting each time from the book of Deuteronomy, the very book that sees Israel in the wilderness for the 40 years, and they're about to enter the promised land. Jesus himself is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of the promised land. Adam experienced opposition and failed. Christ experiences opposition and succeeds. Israel experienced opposition and failed. Christ, on the other hand, experiences opposition and succeeds. So that's some of the context here that Luke describes. Now I want to say one thing as I begin too, that living a good life does not exempt anyone from a wilderness experience. When you think about it, Jesus led the perfect life, and what happened? He had a wilderness experience. We see it as, as well in the Old Testament in the book of Job, how Job was described at that time as the most righteous person on the planet, and yet he had a terrible wilderness experience. We have to say as well that sometimes our wilderness experiences may be self-made if we're honest. Let me give an example of that. If I decide I'm going to spend more than I earn because I want the latest gadgets and I get myself into debt, and then I might find that I enter into a financial wilderness experience, which is of my own making. But not all wilderness experiences are of our own making. Christ isn't here. I wonder if you feel that you're in one today. As Jesus is in the wilderness, he is tempted by the devil. Luke tells us Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now, in Western culture, the devil is often seen as an imaginary figure, often depicted as some kind of cartoon character. For example, yesterday, I was in a supermarket and I noticed that someone had a tattoo of the devil or a devil on their ankle. Strange thing to do anyway, never mind. Um, but it, this devil was depicted in the traditional, I guess, way, red color, horns, a tail sticking out with a fork on the end, with a fork on the end, a trident in their hand. And it was depicted as a sort of cartoon character. And I guess that's many people's estimation of what the devil is. Or maybe some people think, well, if you believe in the devil, okay, fair enough, but that's your choice, uh, that's your truth. But that belief doesn't have any bearing on my life. I believe something different. The Bible and Jesus teach otherwise. 
And unlike some philosophies, Christianity does not depict good and evil as equal and equal in power. Neither does it say that evil depends on your point of view. Good and evil are just relative. One person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist. Nor does Christianity say that good and evil are meaningless. Oh, well, it's just simply the struggle for the survival of the fittest. That's what it's all about. No, Christianity categorically points to evil spiritual powers that lead and magnify human evil. Yes, there is evil in human hearts. We see that come out. But what the Bible teaches is that there is a, a supernatural spiritual power behind all that that magnifies and amplifies the evil. I could give you many examples of that from history, but I'm just going to give you one. I'm going to show you a picture now. This is a picture of a rather lovely villa. This villa is by a lake. Does anybody know what it is? Anyway, this is a, there was a meeting there. Fifteen men came to the meeting, and over half of them were, uh, had doctorates from university. They were served coffee and cake during the meeting, and after the meeting, some of them stayed behind and had a glass of fine brandy. Now I'm going to show a picture of one of the men who was at the meeting. You may recognize him. This man was at the meeting. Some years later, this man was described as extremely average and mundane. But this man was involved in one of the most evil plans in human history, the extermination of the Jewish people. This is what was known as the Van Zee Conference, which happened in Berlin in 1942 in that house. And he was one of the perpetrators where they planned the extermination of the Jewish people. His name is Adolf Eichmann. He was described at his trial as a very ordinary person. Surely a case to make for a powerful evil intelligence that was behind this conference of so-called civilized people. Jesus is very clear about the devil, referring to him as a thief. The Gospel of John tells us, Jesus saying, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And Luke tells us that Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Who knows what the other temptations were? But we're told about three. And I want to look at them briefly. And the first one I would describe as identity challenged. In fact, the devil does it more than once. In verse 3, the devil said to him, i.e. Christ, if you are the Son of God. And in verse 9, again, he repeats that, if you are the Son of God. So what's Satan doing there? This is what he's doing. He's challenging Jesus' identity. Previously, Jesus' identity had been affirmed by both the Holy Spirit and the Father. At Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove, and the Father said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This was an affirmation of Jesus' identity as he was about to be launched into his salvation ministry. So when the devil challenges Jesus' sense of identity, he realizes that if he can undermine Jesus' sense of identity, then Jesus' mission will fail. 
This is not the only time, by the way, that Jesus' identity will be challenged. It gets challenged throughout his ministry. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we read that Jesus is accused of being a half-breed. You're half-Samaritan, and the Samaritans were despised in those days by the Jewish people. He's dismissed by his, his hometown as simply, oh, he's just a local boy, and they take offense at him. He's accused of being demon-possessed, of being in league with the devil. He's dressed up in a red robe at one time with a stick for a scepter and a crown of thorns, and he's ridiculed. At the beginning of his ministry here in the wilderness, Jesus' identity is disputed. And right at the end, even while he's hanging on the cross, Jesus' identity is disputed. Matthew tells us, as Jesus hangs on the cross, the people around him say, come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Now, we see a growing crisis of identity in the Western world. And much could be said about that. And I could say some things, and they might be controversial. But there's a crisis of identity, and I think the reason is this. This is my own personal opinion. Because by and large, we've abandoned God. It's a Western civilization. The tragedy of our Western civilization is we've abandoned God, and we think we know better than he does. And boy, we do not. Therefore, we have a crisis of identity that we read about in the news virtually every single day. You know, and the thing is, we've got a great heritage, great Christian heritage in our nation over mm, 1,700 years. And we've decided, no, we don't want that. We want to make up our own rules and guidance. But it's led to a crisis of identity. I was very encouraged, I have to say, on a positive note, on Wednesday at our prayer meeting as John read from Psalm 139. It's a psalm that I regularly go back to, not just because it's got beautiful poetry, but because it says something profound to me, at least, because it helps shape my sense of identity. Let me quote from verse 13, where the psalmist writes, for you, talking of God, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And this simple verse tells me lots of things. It tells me that I'm not simply some random coming together of atoms and chemicals. It tells me that I'm not an accident. It tells me that God is my creator, purposefully created. It tells me that the faculties I have are from God himself. And that leads me to a sense of humble gratitude. Thank you, Father, that I'm not an accident. But I'm created by divine mandate. You have a purpose for my life. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you, Lord. It helps strengthen my sense of identity. Yes, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a brother and so on. But actually, who I am in Christ is what shapes these other relationships I have. What is shaping your sense of identity? What God has done for you and who you are as a result of that will be challenged. Let me repeat that. What God has done for you and who you are as a result of that will be challenged. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. 
Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus uses the word of God in his resistance of the devil. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. And we read further in Matthew's gospel when he describes the temptations that Jesus amplifies his answer. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why is God's word so important in terms of strengthening our sense of identity? Because God's word is truth. God's word is powerful. Let there be light, God says in the beginning. He just speaks and it happens. He sent forth his word and he healed them, we read in the Psalms. Is not my word like a hammer and a fire, God says? When the apostle Peter got out of the boat, what gave him the courage to do it? It was Jesus' word. And Peter said to Jesus, if it's you, Lord, bid me come out of the boat. And Jesus says one word, he says, come. And it gives Peter the courage to get out of the boat. God wants to speak a word into your life today in order to strengthen your sense of identity, to strengthen your sense of who you are in him. Because it will be under attack. The devil attacked Jesus and he will attack you and seek to undermine your sense of identity and your sense of security and who you are in Christ and what God has done for you and in God himself. Satan wants to undermine all that. And Jesus combats this by declaring the word of God. And we need to do the same. We need to have that by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Jesus stood at Lazarus' tomb, he said, Lazarus, come out. Why did he say Lazarus? Because there was a dead man in there? No, because if he hadn't said Lazarus, the whole of the dead would have come to life. God's word is not like yours and mine. It's absolute rock solid. It can be relied on. It's guaranteed by God himself. Now, on a more mundane matter, we had problems with our vacuum cleaner. And uh, we decided we needed to get a new one. So we went to the shop and we got one that had a five-year guarantee. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? But the guarantee is only as good as the company that made it. Does the company have a good track record? Is it reliable? Does it have a good reputation? Will it still be here in five years' time? Who can tell? But with Jesus, we can. He is rock solid, reliable. You know, I, so much I love about Jesus, and one of the things is this, where it describes him and it says, we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus made a little lower than the angels. And yet, John tells us, without him, Christ, nothing that was made has been made. And yet he's made a little lower than the created beings. Ah. Wow. For nothing else he is worthy of worship. For that alone, I think. Is he reliable? Are his guarantees worth much? Jesus tempted to take the easy way out. Just change those stones to bread. No big deal for you. You're the son of God. No problem. There's nobody around to see what you're doing anyway. Won't do anybody any harm. After all, you are hungry. You've earned it. I mean, you fasted for 40 days. Just a little bread. You can end the fast with a bang. Just treat yourself. 
It's not as though I'm asking you to, to conjure up a feast, is it? It's only bread. You don't even have to eat it all. But Jesus resists the devil and uses the word of God to repel him. In each of the temptations, Jesus uses the word of God to repel the tempter. What about you and me? Jesus is saturated, is soaked, is steeped in the word of God. And it comes to the surface as he's tempted by the devil. So the devil seeks to undermine Jesus' sense of identity and he does the same for you and me. The second thing is, it's sin's empty promise. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. (laughs) Trouble is, Satan does not have what he offers. It's not his to give. It actually belongs to Christ. Sin promises much, but delivers death. The Bible speaks of the deceitfulness of sin. It promises much, but it delivers dust. When Eve was tempted in the Garden of Eden, she just had a look and was drawn in. I don't know if you've ever been to a restaurant. Uh, You've had a nice main meal, and then... uh, Whoever you're with says to you, do you fancy a dessert? And you say, "Uh, no, I'm on a diet, or no, I feel fairly full, but I'll just have a look. (laughs) I'll just have a look. And we all know where that leads. Eve decided she would just have a look. Now, sin is deceitful. Jesus here, he does not flirt with sin. He does not get close to it. He does not enter into debate with the devil at all. He doesn't dispute with him. But he says, no, worship the Lord and him only. Actual fulfillment is found as we worship the Lord. I know it's difficult. You know, I've been a Christian now for over 40 years. I still find it difficult to, I know the truth. I know the fact that as I worship God, that is a good thing to do. And I know that... um, You know, to have a greater sense of fulfillment, I need to do that more. I understand that. But there's something in me that still seems to think that there are other ways in which maybe I could be more fulfilled. We used to sing a song that had a line in it which said this, All my springs of joy are in you. And that's a a profound truth in there too. God is not out to spoil our fun. But as we worship him, we find that we have we get more expansive as a human being. We find that we find our sense of who we really are in Him. We find our true purpose as we come and we worship Him. 350 years ago, a group of uh, theological saints got together in the UK and they came up with Christian doctrine in 107 questions and answers. It's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I haven't read them all, but I've read the first one, and it's this. What is the chief end of man? That was the question and the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him Forever. There's something beautiful, there's something wonderful, there's something precious, there's something wholesome 
as we draw near to the Lord in worship, and what happens is this, the Lord draws near to us and something profound happens in our innermost being, we gradually and gently and patiently get transformed from one degree of glory to another by the Holy Spirit. No, I'm not going to do that, Jesus said. Worship the Lord. I won't worship you. I won't worship that, whatever it is that might replace you. No, I'll worship God and him alone. Sin's empty promise. Jesus rejects it. And he does it through using the word of God. Let's not not let God's word gather dust on the bookcase or simply slid under the bed and forgotten about. But let's look at his word. Let's study his word. Let's read his word. Let's imbibe his word. Eat it so that it becomes a part of us. The third temptation is to do with trust. The devil then tempts Jesus. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But again, Jesus responds with the word of God, do not put the Lord your God to the test. As a society, we want to put God to the test. In fact, we think God should be put to the test. There's no question of that at all. As a society, we do that regularly. We put him to the test. We want him to give us the answers we want. If there is so much suffering in the world, how can there be a loving God? Tell me that, God, if you exist. That's our thinking. We want to put God to the test. Now, it's very interesting. If you read the book of Job, and you know Job's story, how Job suffered terribly. He lost his family, he lost his wealth, he lost his health. It went terribly for him. He certainly was in a wilderness experience. He was puzzled, he was angry, he was upset, he was sad, he was distraught, etc. And then God speaks to him. And basically, to summarize what God says, it's this. This is who I am. He does not give Job a catalog of answers for his suffering. He just says, this is who I am. And Job's response, he says, I repent. I just said, I just talked a load of rubbish. I didn't know what I was talking about. But having, I heard about you, but now that I've seen you, I just repent. Trust in the Lord. I wonder if you're going through a wilderness experience which is not of your own making. Trust in the Lord through it. Now that doesn't mean I'm saying be passive. No, no, there may be things that you can do. But at the same time, the bedrock is to trust in the Lord. So we can rely not only on the word of the Lord, but also on the Lord of the word. Book of Hebrews tells us this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I want you right now to consider a situation that you may be facing Maybe it's temptation. Maybe it's just a difficulty, a wilderness experience in your life, of, not of your own making. And I want you to reaffirm your trust in the Lord today. Just as you're sitting here quietly, 
I want you to do that. Say, Lord, I see this situation. It's real, it's tough, it's hard, but I'm gonna trust you through it. Right, as the band come back up, and they're gonna lead us in worship in a moment because it's so powerful to do that. Good and evil are not co-equal. Jesus has triumphed over death and hell. He's victorious. And his love for you and me is the foundation of our identity. And let's draw near and worship now because this is where we find our true identity in God himself who is worthy of all our worship. Thank you, Jesus, that you resisted the devil. You rejected the temptations. You went to the cross because of your love for us. And now you're seated at the highest place of all. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.